Malachi chapter 2, chapter 2, it's been a couple of weeks obviously, me being gone from us since we've been in Malachi, so by way of reminder to give you a picture of the context, remember that as we came into chapter 2 with the last message we had, uh, the conversation had turned from God speaking kind of to the nation at large, to speaking to the priests. And I think that um, that, that continues here, even though that the, some of the things he says to the priests relate to the nation, I think that's still where the conversation uh, is primarily directed. And so, as we're going to come here, we're going to see that um, God is going to be speaking through the prophet Malachi, and he is going to talk to them about covenant breaking, about the breaking of the covenant that the nation had with the Lord, about the covenant that the priesthood had with the Lord. And within this, he's going to use the picture of marriage to illustrate all of that. And so within this, there's a lot of conversation about divorce, but the bigger context is that that marriage is the picture of covenant, It's one of the primary pictures we have of covenant. And so God is going to use that as he is speaking to these wicked priests. And so I want you to look with me at this text beginning in verse 10. And I'm just going to read the first, uh, read probably through verse 12. And I'll read the rest as we go. There the Bible says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Here the text of Scripture begins with this question from God. Have we not all one Father? Interesting, isn't it, that God would ask that. The prophet, the Lord speaking through the prophet, is appealing to the the familial bonds that Judah and Israel should have, not only to one another, but to God Himself. And as he is doing that, he's, he's establishing again this conversation of covenant. The, 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 the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they had covenants with God. The priesthood had a covenant with God. And in fact, I would say the priesthood had a covenant with the people. And so God's asking these questions to prepare them for this discussion of the treachery of their covenant breaking. And he does ask that question. He says, why do we deal treacherously with one another? You're supposed to be brothers and sisters. You're supposed to be those who have a common faith, and yet they were not acting like it. They had profaned the covenant of the fathers. You see, dealing treacherously is, is, is really an underlining of the selfish motives. Treachery is rooted in selfishness. I'm going to betray, I'm going to uh, uh, deceive, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get whatever it is that I want out of a particular situation. And, and God is, is confronting them here, right? The, 
this is, I believe this is one of the scourges of our day is that it, it's very self-focused, right? It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about my goals, my, my, my dreams, my wants, my needs. It's not about what God wants many times, and it's, also, it's never about what other people want or need. It's always focused on me. And this is what God's bringing to their attention as they were dealing selfishly with each other and sinning not only against one another, but sinning against the Lord. Because we have to realize, even in a New Testament Christian context, that when we come to know Christ, we're not only bound together with Him, we're bound together with one another. The, the, the people of God, people who call themselves Christians, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are, we are bound together in a common faith. And so we are, uh, we are in that covenant. We are, yes, beholden to God, but we are beholden to one another to, to walk with each other, to support one another, to bear one another's burdens, to help each other. And dealing selfishly with each other is a sin against God. And the place that this is show so stark within the life of Judah and Israel is in their profaning of the marriage covenant. Right? He says in verse 11, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah's profane the Lord's holy institution which he loves. And he tells them what this has looked like. He says he has married the daughter of a foreign god. They had profaned God's institution of marriage, and how had they done it? Well, they had done it by marrying pagans. And there are those within this context that say, well, is this, is this about the nation at large, or was it the priests specifically that had done this? I would say it's probably both and, right? That, that they were marrying outside of the faith, as it were. And this is, this is within the Old Testament covenant, this is a clear and it's one of the big rules, right? You cannot, you shall not do this. You shall not marry someone who is outside of the nation. It's outside of the faith. And you say, well, I don't know about that. Does that mean we can't marry anybody that's not from where we're from? No, I, I would dare say this is not a denouncement of cross-cultural marriage. But this is a denouncement of cross-religious marriage, which in fact I think is resoundingly repeated throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New, right? This, this idea that, that Jesus talks about being unequally yoked with, I mean, I mean Paul talks about it being unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? We, we must, and this is an unpopular thing to say, but we must stand tall in the truth that God says... Not that it's a sin to marry somebody that has a different background, ethnicity, color, whatever you want to call it than us, but it is against the revealed will of God for someone who is a Christian, someone who is of the household of faith, to marry someone who is outside of the faith. It's against God's, it's against God's revelation. It's against the Bible. One preacher said it this way. He said, Many of many a son or daughter of the devil, I'm, I'm, he says this, not many, my handwriting's terrible, excuse me for that. Marry, right? Marry a son or daughter of the devil and you always have trouble with your father-in-law. And I think that's the truth, right? If we, if we go outside of the faith, we are in violation of what God says and it is a recipe for disaster. 
He says, the, the picture that's going to be painted through this is you marry a pagan, you're, you're very likely going to end up raising pagan offspring. He's, this is not what God would have for his people. And again, we can point to example after example why this isn't a denouncement of cross-cultural marriage, right? Boaz marries the Moabite Ruth. And we can, we can point out specific instances where this is the reality. But Ruth had been one who had adopted the faith of her mother-in-law. And so she was the follower of the one true God. And so we've got to be clear in our proclamation. We can't go the way of the people that want to get, uh, uh, get into racist, sinful territory and say you can't marry outside of your race or outside of your culture. No, you just, if you Christians marry Christians. That's the principle. God's people marry God's people so that we may bring forward the kingdom of God not only through proclamation and evangelism but also through the building godly families and raising godly offspring. He says that there is a punishment for this that is coming, that has come, as the prophet speaks to the nation. May the, this is verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. He says this, he speaks of this idea of being cut off. And the picture here is more than just that man enduring punishment. The, the phrase there really means that his line will end, that his family will not be perpetuated. That through, through the, the sin of those who would marry outside of the faith, that, they would be, that, that their family line would just come to nothing. Now, he does, uh, there is a qualifier there, the man who does this being awake and aware. It's not a man who's been deceived. He knows what he's doing. And there's a punishment. He says, even though he brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, he will endure this. Friends, we, we can go through religious observances. We can say we're one thing. We can profess to be followers of the one true God. But if we are continually existing in opposition to the revealed truth of God, it doesn't matter how much money we give. It doesn't matter how many services we attend. We are under the judgment of God. That's the picture being painted here. As this text goes on, Verse 13 is, is kind of transitional here as he talks about this second thing that you do. And I, in my notes, I've written this down as the sin of crocodile tears. But here's what it says. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. What are they doing? They're making a show of repentance without there being an actual repentant heart. They're trying to, through emotional out, an emotional outpouring, make it look as if they uh, understand they're wrong. They're trying to buy favor with God by expressing their emotions. He said, but God does not regard the offering. He's not going to receive it with goodwill. From your hands. There's a real interesting line that we flirt with, I think, when we, when we talk about emotions, whether it be in life or even the life of the church. Emotions are not a bad thing. 
right? Even someone who's moved emotionally by the Lord and, and responds, you know, within a church service, and maybe they've got, maybe they're weeping or, or, or whatever it may look like. There's nothing wrong with that unless that's the sum total of all that's going on. Whenever God works on our heart, there's many times that it will produce an emotional response, but if we're not being transformed, if, if it's not that we're being convicted or that we're being encouraged or whatever it may be that has, God has done something within us that's being expressed in an outward way, if it's not happening on the inside and we're just putting on the show on the outside. And guys, I just came from a place where I've been for several days and... Uh, and they were a bunch of shouting Baptists. And they just like to shout. And that's, I enjoy that. But do I think that everybody that hollered and said amen and hallelujah and glory to God, do I think that everybody that was doing that was doing that from a place of that's what God wants me to do right now in this moment and in this time? Probably not. Or some people probably did it out of habit. There's probably some people that did it because everybody else was doing it. I understand that. And so there's a, there's a fine line there. We've got to be careful that we're not putting on a show for somebody else in church or putting on a show for somebody else in life and putting on uh, emotional outpourings and not allowing God to work on the inside. This was their sin. God wanted nothing to do with their false outward profession because He knew that their hearts were corrupted and had not been transformed. He goes on in verse 14 as he begins to really use the, the, the picture, as he already has, but he's going to get more in depth, the picture of marriage and this idea of covenant breaking. He says, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of the, your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, we, we don't need to take verse 14 without connecting it back to the previous mention. And, and some would say that what's being talked about here is that there were, in fact, not just marrying pagans, but they were, in fact, divorcing those who were within the household of faith in order to marry pagans. Now, I think that's probably accurate. So that's, that's, that's even, again, just marrying pagans was a bad enough thing, but to, but to divorce someone who is of the household of faith in order to go do that, how much more wicked would that be? And he said, in doing this, you are making God appear a liar. In breaking the covenant of that marriage in a, in a way that is sinful is making God appear a liar. Why? Because God was a witness. He was a witness to the vows that you have broken. He was a witness to the covenant that you had made. And look, this text isn't the text where we're going to draw out everything where, well, what's a biblical divorce and what's not a biblical divorce? That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is ultimately that God is saying that, that divorce, particularly in these circumstances, is a, an act that is an act that is loaded with treachery, typically speaking. And he's telling them that as a picture of the covenant, which is what marriage is, even in a New Testament context, what is marriage a picture of? It's a picture of Christ and the church. Christ as the husband, the bridegroom. And the church as the bride of Christ. That's the purpose of marriage is to picture the covenant and the relationship that Jesus has with His people. 
And that's why it's such, a, it's such a terrible thing, whatever the circumstance, when divorce happens, even if you want to say that, well, there were circumstances that mean it was a biblical divorce, okay, I, I grant you there are biblical things there, but even when there are, it is such a difficult, terrible uh, uh, thing that, that has so much impact because it is the breaking of this beautiful picture that God has given us. He says... You're making God appear a liar because He was the witness to these vows that you've broken, this covenant that's been smashed. Look what he says here. I love that, the, and this is just a bit of an aside, but he talks about the wife of your youth being your companion by covenant. That One of the things that um, we've got to make sure that we understand is that we always talk about when we get in church conversations about marriage, oh, we've got to, you know, Women respect your husbands. Husbands love your wives and all of those things. But if you take it all the way back to the garden, what was the purpose of marriage? It was so that man would not be alone. It was companionship. Marriage was given by God for the sake of companionship, for the sake of having someone there with you, walking with you through life. And that's what's being referenced here is the companionship of marriage and even that being destroyed. Your wife by covenant. And in verse 15, I think the entirety of verse 15 is really a reference back to Adam and the the founding of the covenant of marriage. He says, "But but did he not make them one? having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. He speaks to this idea of oneness, right? That that we talk about, we had companionship and oneness. And again, if you take it back to the garden, you take it back to the book of Genesis, what, what is again the words that God uses to describe marriage being made one flesh? That's not just the description of physical intimacy. It's definitely that, but it's not just that. It's the bringing together of two people into this covenant. And he tells them, well, why why did he do that? Why did he bring them together? He said, well, one of the primary reasons, we've talked about companionship, but also to raise up godly offspring. In a world that has, in in a weird way, we've, We've devalued children, and, and then in other times we've elevated children, right? We've, we've devalued children in that we think that their life is, is not worthy, and, and they're, they're murdered at will in the womb, and they're, uh, they're, they're perverted in, in a lot of different ways. The, the kids are targeted with all manner of attack and perversion. We've, we've, we've diminished them, but then on the other end of things, just like sin is, we can take sin to an extreme in one direction and in another, and in other places we've made children little gods, in some, some situations. And we've allowed them to dictate families and, and tell families what, what they're going to do and how things are going to go. The picture is, is that the oneness of marriage is brought about for companionship and also that two who are rightly together within the covenant, right? They believe in the same things. They've got the same values because they believe in the same God that they will perpetuate this to the next generation, and to the next generation, and to the next generation. Right? We, we value our offspring, and one of the ways we value them is by passing on the word of the Lord. 
It should be the priority. It should be the thing that rises above every other uh, commitment. It should be the thing that, that takes preeminence in our lives and in our households. And that's not easy to do in this day and age. I, I readily admit that. But this is the purpose. right? This is part of the reason that God pulled this covenant together was for the purpose of producing generation after generation that would bow the knee to God. And so... In this, in this entire context of covenant breaking, God's saying there's, the, there's kind of the, the big picture, the macro, where the nation has departed the covenant. And, and because of that, we see that this is happening on the, on the micro level, at the family level. There's covenant breaking in the, in the marriage relationship within the nation, and then you back up, and there's covenant breaking as a nation as well. And some would say, well, does the... Is it the national, the, the, the large level covenant breaking that leads to it happening within the, small, the smaller focus of the family? Or is it the family that leads to it happening on a national level? And I think my answer to that would be yes. It's both. Whenever we, whenever we drift as a, as a group, whether it be however large you want to make the group, if a church drifts from the truth... We're bound to have a lot of people drifting from the truth within the life of the church. If a nation drifts from the truth, we're liable to have a lot of people within a nation that are drifting from the truth. But if you, you can also go from the ground up whenever families are not being ordered according to the Word of God and, 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 and everyone is going their own way, it is liable that, that we will perpetuate generations who do not value that covenant, who do not value the Lord, and that will spread also. So I think it goes to the top down and the bottom up, both directions. But it's about oneness. It's about the picture of the covenant. It's about raising up generations. And God says this is, this is violence. This is breaking the covenant. It's breaking the picture. Remember, this is Old Testament. This is all pointing us forward to Christ. And God's telling them, you are, you are destroying the arrow that's pointing us to the Messiah that's coming. The whole purpose of the Jewish nation being special in the eyes of God was, was through this line, God would bring about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did He still accomplish it? Of course He did. He's God and that was His plan. But that does not mean that they get a pass for completely destroying what He was trying, for, for trying to destroy that which God was doing. And so... We have to be honest about this. I know it's a hard subject. Man, it, within a room this size, man, I, I, my family has divorce within it. Your family has divorce within it. We've all, we, we've all experienced it at varying levels of involvement. And this isn't about beating people up about divorce. It's about understanding that the bigger picture of what marriage is about and why it's important to God. He says, For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Some say that that first phrase about, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence, that it should be, in fact, be translated, one who divorces because of hate covers his garment with violence. Saying that, that they're putting the hatred within, uh, on the, the person who's divorcing and not on God. Uh, I won't argue the textual um, minutia with you, but I think that the translation as the New King James has it is probably accurate. But the picture, the picture is relatively the same. God, God does not desire divorce. 
Now, I can say that, but I can also say when Ezra and Nehemiah encountered a widespread perversion of the marriage covenant where so many had intermarried with the pagans, and at the, at the end, what did they do? They told them they had to separate themselves from foreign wives. God told them to do that. Okay? Again, I understand there's nuance to all of this, but the general principle is that God hates it because it's a violent thing. It's something that has a major impact and can destroy lives. It can pervert fam- families. It can do all manner of things. Again, it's violence because Genesis tells us when man and woman marry, it's one flesh. And I don't care what you're talking about. When you, if you have something that's flesh and it's brought together and it's flesh and you begin to separate that flesh no matter how careful you are about it, no matter what the circumstances of that division are, that is an act of violence and it has a deep impact. And that's what God's telling them. Separating flesh is violence, especially when there's no reasoning. Especially when it's to pursue evil, which is the bigger, the bigger context of this. When we, when we break that picture and there's no biblical justification, it is such a horrific act of violence. It's, but here's the other thing we got to say. When we, when we come down and we get to talk about things like this, because we're going through the book of Malachi, the other thing that, that everybody needs to hear because of the, the widespread impact this has had on all of our lives at different levels is this. The other thing we got to recognize is divorce is not the unforgivable sin, and we got to quit acting like that too. Because it's just not. And there have been times throughout the history of the church when people have acted that way. We, we need to say what it is that, that, that there are parameters for biblical divorce and there are things that are not parameters for biblical divorce and we need to be clear on that. And if we need to deal with it within the context of a church and, and all of that, we've got to do that. We've got to stand on what's right and true. But we also got to say that there is redemption for all things. There's forgiveness for all things. And so we dare not come down and say, oh, this is terrible, this is awful. God says this. Yes, He does. But He also says, run to me in repentance. And I will forgive. So the question is, He says, he says let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. How do, how do you do that? Well, you guard your spirit. You flee temptation. You seek the Lord. You. Stay within the household of faith. If two Christians can't pull it together and and get it right, then they need to seek the counsel of godly people around them that will uh, try to hold them up and support them and encourage them in the right things and not the wrong things. Because a lot of times when these divisions begin to happen, we run everywhere but to the wisdom of God and His people we go get with this people or that this group of people or that group of people who fills our head full of nonsense and says, "Yeah, yeah, go ahead and do that. Do what you want to do. Go have fun. Uh, you ain't got to live like that. God just wants you to be happy." Man, I'll tell you something. I, I am convinced more and more and more that God is way less concerned about our happiness, and He is more concerned about our holiness because He knows that holiness is what's for our good. It's what's for His glory. Happiness is fleeting. The joy of the Lord that comes from seeking to live in holiness is that which can last eternally. 
So he says, don't do this. Don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Don't, don't, uh, don't deceive. Don't, don't make this violent cut with zero justification from the Word of God. And as he comes to verse 17 and, and the chapter's finished up, he kind of summarizes here. I think he's summarizing everything in the book up to this point. And in fact, I would say chapter 3 is a transition that's going to take us in a, uh, an entirely different direction. And this verse is kind of where the turn is made. He says, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? He gives us, again, two ends of this sinful spectrum. There's the approving of that which God says is evil. We're getting a belly full of that these days. Churches, folks telling us that, well, you gotta, you got to accept this, you got to accept that, you got to accept this, you got to accept that. No, we cannot be those who say that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. This is just not true. We cannot say that he delights in them. It's just not true. We cannot do that. It's a disservice to God first and foremost, and it's a disservice to that person. We need to tell them that. But on the other end, he speaks about those who say, oh, where is the God of justice? God, you didn't, you didn't do this. You didn't take care of this. God, those people are sinning. Why don't you strike them down? You ever done that? You ever got a little bit of the... Uh, same energy as the sons of thunder, Jesus' disciples, who said, God, why don't, you, why don't you just wipe these people out? Just, just, just knock them out. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about pointing out other sins and ignoring your own. God, look at these folks. Right? We don't, we don't approve of that which is wicked, but we also don't sit there and say, God, you need to work justice on these people but we want mercy for ourselves. That's how I prefer it. I don't, want, I don't want God's justice for me. Because God's justice for me gets me to hell. That's where it gets me. God's mercy and grace gets me into His presence with glory. He worked out His justice on His Son. And underneath the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I, can, I have a pathway back to God. But for us to stand back and look at people who are lost, look at people who are in the midst of deep and dark sin, and to say, God, would you work your justice on these people? Instead of saying, God, would you have mercy on these as you've had mercy on me? even in the context of the whole, this, this whole passage that we've looked at as it's talking about divorce, we've got to stand flat-footed and say that, yes, divorce is, is, is it's terrible, it's wicked before God. Yes, we know there's biblical reasons for it but, it, but ultimately it's the breaking of this picture. But we must also stand up and say there is mercy and grace at the foot of the cross even for the one who divorces for unbiblical, ungodly, and wicked reasons. We've got to say both things. We don't say, look at these folks and look at what they're doing. God, work justice on them. No, we say, God, in the midst of this broken and terrible situation, would you work your mercy and grace in them? Would you draw them back to yourself? The wickedness of these people was not, not just that they were lost in their own sin, but they wanted God to work His justice on everybody but them. 
Let us not be guilty of that. Let us be those who realize the treasures of mercy and grace that we've received and that we bring them before others and say, look what's available if you will come and turn to Christ. Yes, you're in the midst of sin. Yes, you're in the midst of wickedness. Yes, what you're doing right here is wrong before God, but there's forgiveness for that in Jesus Christ. Don't approve what is evil. But our proclamation is that our God is merciful. Our God is good. Our God forgives. The Lord hates covenant breaking. But we have all broken the covenant that He has given. Praise God that there's mercy to be found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the day. I thank You for Your truth, Your Word. I thank You for the Old Testament that points us to Jesus. I thank You for the picture of marriage that points us to Jesus. I thank You, Lord, that even in the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of, of, of marriages that happen and the brokenness of our own sin, Lord, that we can be pointed to Jesus. And I pray that we would all do that. That we would all run to the foot of the cross, that we would repent when necessary, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in forgiveness, and we would be messengers of that truth. Lord, help us not to approve that which is evil, but help us not be those that want to call down Your thunder of judgment on people who are just like we were apart from Your grace. Help us to travail in prayer for the salvation of souls, knowing it's all in Your hands. But Lord, break our hearts for what breaks Yours so that we might see more people come to know You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you all.